Good afternoon, everyone. And this will be basically a review, and I'm going to go quite quickly. We dealt with Daniel 7. You remember we dealt with Daniel 7? And we're just going to review the powers that we find in Daniel 7. And then we're going to go beyond this chapter. So first of all, we have a lion, which represents what kingdom? Babylon. Babylon. Then we have a bear, which is Medo-Persia. Then we have a leopard beast, Greece. What terrible uh, dragon beast? Rome. The ten horns that come out on the head of the dragon beast. Ah, the divisions of the Roman Empire. Then comes up a little horn and uproots three of the horns. That's between 476 and 538. And then once uh, the little horn rises to power without any rivals because it's uprooted three, it rules for how long? It rules for 1,260 years. Now, the book of Daniel does not give us all the details. Uh, Daniel takes us primarily to the period of the 1,260 years and the judgment that, that begins afterwards. But the book of Revelation adds to the scenario that we find in the book of Daniel, particularly when it comes to the end time. Daniel is a prophecy, and the book of Revelation is a revelation, according to the spirit of prophecy. Revelation amplifies what we find in the book of Daniel. So in 1798, when the papacy received its deadly wound, we are told in Revelation 13, verse 11, that another beast rises from the earth. That's not mentioned in Daniel chapter 7. It's not mentioned in Daniel chapter 2. It's, it is an additional element that we find in uh, the book of Revelation because Revelation amplifies and completes the picture that we have in Daniel. So you have this beast that rises from the earth and this beast has two horns like a lamb but it ends up speaking like a dragon. What does this beast represent? What nation? Okay, I'm just jumping over many things. You know, I have a series called God's Prophetic Chain where I dedicate an hour, basically, to each of these elements. But, uh, you know, I'm assuming that uh, because we're all uh, Adventists and we're Bible students that this afternoon, this is all review for us. So we have this beast that rises from the earth. It's the United States. This beast has two horns like a lamb, but it's going to end up speaking like a dragon. So the next event in the prophetic chain is the United States already rose around the same time that the first beast received its deadly wound, but the next step is when this nation is going to end up speaking like a dragon. And, uh, and then after this nation speaks like a dragon, there will be a trial, we know, over the issue of Sabbath and Sunday, whether you accept human authority or whether you accept divine authority when it comes to the day of worship. And then as we studied yesterday, after all decisions are made, the kingdom of Jesus is made up, and then you have the close of human probation. After the close of pro human probation, we have the time of trouble such as never has been seen, and at the end of the time of trouble, God's people are delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. Now, we need to say a few things about this beast that rises from the earth particularly the two, two horns of this beast that rises from the earth. The two horns, as I've shown in, in several of my presentations, the two horns represent civil and religious liberty. 
They represent, in other words, separation of church and state. The secular power operating as a secular power and the religious power acting as a religious power. Civil and religious liberty. But we know that this beast that at first guaranteed civil and religious liberty is going to repudiate those two principles of civil and religious liberty. In other words, it's going to repudiate its constitution. Now, let me say something about the Constitution of the United States, particularly the First Amendment to the Constitution. By the way, the amendments are part of the Constitution. I'm sure that you're aware of that. It's not an appendix to the Constitution. The amendments are part of the Constitution. So the First Amendment to the Constitution actually contains uh, the two horns like a lamb, the First Amendment. The First Amendment has three clauses. The first clause says, Congress shall make no law which establishes religion regarding the establishment of religion. In other words, a civil power cannot establish any religious observance. Secular power can't do that. The second clause says, or forbidding the free exercise thereof. The civil power cannot forbid people from practicing their religion. It cannot enforce religion, religious observance, and it cannot forbid people from practicing their religion. And then the third a clause of the First Amendment guarantees civil liberties. Basically the third clause says that Congress shall make no law respecting an abridging of the freedom of speech. Is that a civil liberty? Yes. Or of the press. Is that a civil liberty? Yes. Or the right of the people peaceably to assemble. Is that a uh, civil liberty? Yes and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Can you ask the government to do you justice if you've been wronged? Absolutely. And so the third clause of the First Amendment guarantees civil liberty. The first two clauses guarantee religious liberty. The first two clauses say Congress cannot make any law which establishes any religious observance and it cannot make any law that forbids you from practicing your religion according to the dictates of your conscience the third clause guarantees full civil liberties. But we know that the day is coming when the first two clauses of the Constitution are going to, of the First Amendment to the Constitution are going to be repudiated. In other words, we know that the civil power is going to establish Sunday as the day of worship. But we also know that the civil power is going to forbid the free exercise of keeping the Sabbath. Ellen White says not only is, is the civil power going to enforce Sunday observance, she says it's going to forbid Sabbath observance. There you have the first two clauses to the First Amendment to the Constitution. And here's a very important point. When the civil power violates any of the first two clauses of the First Amendment, the automatic result is that you lose your civil liberties. So religious liberty and civil liberty are connected. Let me ask you, when the Sunday law is enacted, and when the, the law, which eventually will come, which forbids the observance of the Sabbath, are God's people going to lose the freedom of speech? Are we going to be able to defend the, the Sabbath freely in our speech? No. Are we going to be able to legally publish anything having to do with defending the Sabbath. There goes the freedom of the press. Are we going to have freedom to assemble freely? No, that's going to be gone. 
Are we going to be able to ask the civil power for a redress of grievances? No. So when the first two clauses of the First Amendment are violated, the result is that the third clause of the First Amendment is violated as well. When your, when your religious liberties are taken away, the result is that your civil liberties are taken away as well. Now, the reason I bring this to view is because we're going to study two stories in the book of Daniel that illustrate what happens when the first two clauses of the First Amendment are violated. There are two biblical stories. I believe uh, that the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States was divinely inspired. You say, what? Are you saying then that Thomas Jefferson and company were prophets that were inspired? No. I'm saying that God actually uh, worked upon their minds to enact the First Amendment. It is, it's based on divine principles. And we're going to notice two stories in the book of Daniel that illustrate what happens when the first two clauses of the, of the First Amendment are violated and how you lose your civil liberties at the same time. But before, let's review the six common denominators that we looked at yesterday afternoon. First of all, there's the faithful. Come on. Do you have it written down? Take out your notes. There is always a faithful remnant. There you go, faithful remnant. Secondly, the, enemy, the, the remnant has what? Enemies. enemies. Very well. And the enemies want to annihilate the remnant. And so God's people then go through what? Through a severe time of trouble. And during this time of trouble, what happens with their faith? Their faith is severely tested. Does God deliver them immediately? No, he delays in delivering them. But finally, after the delay, what does God do? He intervenes and he delivers his people. In all of the passages of scripture that speak about the time of trouble, you have this same pattern, this same scenario, these six common denominators. And we're going to take some more examples this afternoon of that. Go with me to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. Here we're going to see what happens when the secular power establishes religion. What happens when the secular power establishes a religious observance that it commands everybody to obey that religious observance. Now Daniel chapter 3 took place historically, literally, but what happened literally in the Old Testament becomes symbolic on a larger scale of the end of time. For example, in the days of Daniel, the beast, by the way, Nebuchadnezzar lived for a while as a beast, didn't he? He raises what? An image. He commands everyone to worship the image, and whoever does not worship the image will be killed. Does that sound, can you think of any other chapter in the Bible that has something similar to that? Revelation 13. The beast raises an image commands everyone to worship the image. Whoever does not worship the image will be what? Will be killed. But what happens at the end happens on a global scale. It's not in a little valley over in, in Dura, you know, and the furnace is not a literal furnace of fire. The furnace of fire becomes symbolic. You're dealing with spiritual global Babylon. You're dealing with a spiritual symbolic image. You're dealing with a symbolic beast. 
you're dealing with, with a symbolic mark. In other words, everything that's literal in Daniel 3 becomes symbolic at the end of time, becomes global at the end of time. That's the principle. Now let's go to Daniel chapter 3 and examine some elements of this story, which will be repeated once again at the end of time on a global scale. So we better learn from this story. Let's begin our, our um, study of the chapter in Daniel chapter 3 verse 15. You know the, the king raised up an image, he commanded everyone to worship the image, and would, whoever would not worship the image would be thrown into a fiery furnace, heated seven times hotter than ever before. Now there are three young men, which is the faithful remnant, that refuse to worship the image. And so the king is filled with wrath. In fact, Ellen White says that, uh, that when these three young men refused to worship the image, uh, and Nebuchadnezzar gave them another chance, and they said, we don't have to respond to you, we already have our minds made up. She says that the face of Nebuchadnezzar looked like the face of a demon. He was demon-possessed. Now I want you to notice chapter 3 and verse 15. Do you remember the key word that we noticed yesterday, the word deliver? Those of you who were here, deliver. Remember Jacob, he said, deliver me. Remember Daniel 12, verse 1, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. That's a key word when we find the passages on the time of trouble. Notice Daniel 3, verse 15. The king says to the young men, but if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning fiery furnace, and now notice the challenge, and who is the God who will deliver you from my hand? Who is the God who will what? Deliver you. Notice, once again, who's, what God is going to deliver you from my hands? Well, what is the answer of the three young men? Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. We, we've already thought it over. We don't, we don't have to think about it, is what they're saying. In that if that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to, there's the key word, to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and He will deliver us from your hand, O King. But they're not presumptuous. See, they don't serve God for the loaves and the fishes. They don't say to God, you protect us and we'll serve you. They say, we love you and we serve you even if we have to die. That's the end time generation. Verse 18, but if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not worship your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Civil disobedience. Because the civil power is establishing a religious observance which is not the realm of the civil power. Would this be an infringement of the first clause of the First Amendment to the Constitution, establishing a religious observance, saying you have to worship this way? Absolutely. Now, the story becomes very interesting. You know what happens. Uh, the Bible says that uh, Nebuchadnezzar says, problem solved, when he throws the three young men into the furnace. Then he looks into the furnace, and he sees that instead of three, there are four. Let's notice verse 25. Look, he answered. I see four men loosing, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And listen carefully now. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. You know, you'll find versions that say the Son of the Gods, because Nebuchadnezzar was a polytheist. Ellen White says that, it, that 
the three young men and Daniel had told Nebuchadnezzar what the Son of God looked like. He was actually the angel of the Lord. You say, how do you know that? Well, notice that Nebuchadnezzar says the fourth is like the Son of God, but then let's read verse 28. Notice verse 28. It says here, Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel. Who was the Son of God? The angel. What's the name of that angel? Michael. Remember Daniel 12, verse 1? At that time your people shall be what? Delivered. By whom? By Michael. Who was the Son of God in the furnace? It was Jesus, but he is Michael, the archangel, according to this. So now notice the key word once again. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and... That was weak. Did you have lunch today? Oh, you're waiting for supper. So it says, who sent his angel and what? delivered his servants who trusted in him notice the key who trusted in him and they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god and then after this episode the king gives a decree by the way it is an illegitimate decree because the civil power cannot enforce false religion and it, can, and it cannot enforce true religion either. That's not the realm of the civil power. It should be separate from religion. Notice verse 29. The king makes this decree. Of course, he wasn't fully converted. He didn't know everything that the Hebrews knew, so we shouldn't be too hard on him. Verse 29. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be what? Shall be cut in pieces. So you can't speak against the true God or else you're going to get your head chopped off. <laughs> Was that a legitimate decree? No, absolutely not. Shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made an ash heap. And now notice the reason. Because there is no other God who can deliver like this. What is the central theme of Daniel 3? Deliverance. You know, sometimes we focus on the persecution part. The focus here is not on the persecution. The, the focus is on the glorious deliverance. Isn't it? It most certainly is. And you know, and, I, and wherever I travel, I have people say, Oh, Pastor, the time of trouble is going to be terrible. I hope the Lord lays me to rest before then. We shouldn't be saying that. What we should be saying is, I trust in Jesus, and I know that Jesus is going to carry me through, and I'm going to participate in vindicating the greatness and the power of God, the delivering power of God. Don't ask the Lord to, to spare you from this. We need to ask the Lord for strength to go through it. Because I think that the way things are going, this is going to happen sooner rather than later. Now, why did these three young men, why were they faithful? You, did you notice it says they trusted in their God? Let's go to Hebrews 11, where we have find an amplification. Hebrews chapter 11, 
33 and 34 picks up on the fiery furnace and also Daniel in the lion's den, which is the next story that we're going to go to. Hebrews 11, verse 33 and 34. This is the faith chapter. It says there, And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through what? Faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, what else? Stopped the mouths of lions and quenched the violence of fire. What was it that quenched the fire? Faith. What was it that closed the mouths of the lions? Faith. And Daniel 3 says, because they trusted in their God. They were willing to die to be faithful to God. And Ellen White says, only those who have that experience with Jesus will go through successfully through this time of trouble. But the good news is that if we commit our lives totally and completely to Jesus, if we abide in Jesus, God will carry us through that period and he will deliver his people and his name will be glorified. Because imagine Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan king, seeing the Son of God in the furnace delivering the three young men. That certainly would reveal to the people in his day who the true God was, the great God was. So God's name was glorified when these three young men remained faithful to God. A message was given to the empire. Now the next story that we're going to look at is in Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6 illustrates what's, what happens when the second clause of the first amendment is violated, the free exercise clause. See in Daniel 3, the king is establishing a religious observance. He's saying you have to worship this way. Chapter 6, he's not saying you have to worship this way. He's saying there's something in your practices of worship that you can't do. He's forbidding the free exercise of religion, if you please. And by the way, does that Daniel chapter 3 illustrate what happens with your civil liberties when your religious liberties are violated? When the king established the religious observance of having to worship the image, immediately the three young men lost their civil rights. What is the greatest civil right? The right to life. The right to life. Was their life in danger when the king established religion? Absolutely. Now, are the lives of people in danger when the civil power forbids the free exercise of religion? Absolutely. Daniel 6 illustrates this. Let's go to Daniel chapter 6 and verse 5. Oh, by the way, let me review. Is there a faithful remnant in Daniel 3? Yes, the three young men. Do they have enemies? Yeah, King Nebuchadnezzar and his counselors. Do the three young men go through a time of trouble? You don't think being thrown into a furnace is a time of trouble? Was their faith undoubtedly severely tested? Absolutely. Did God delay in delivering them? I mean, God could have given Nebuchadnezzar a heart attack before they were thrown in. But they had to go through the furnace. There was a delay. But at the end of the delay, there was a glorious deliverance. The same common denominators. Now Daniel 6 verse 5. Notice what the conflict is over. In Daniel 3, the conflict is over worship. The civil power enforcing 
false worship. Now we're going to find the civil power forbidding true worship. And it has to do with God's law. Notice Daniel 6 verse 5. These are the enemies of Daniel. Then these men said, We shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we, unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Is the final controversy over the law? Is it over worship? Absolutely. And so these men prepare a plot, the advisors of the king. The last article that I wrote for our newsletter was an article uh, titled, Reflections on Bad Spiritual Advice. And basically, I took several stories from the Bible to show that every time that the civil power is deceived by its religious advisors, the result is that ultimately what happens is instead of the, the civil powers uh, doing what the religious counselors say in destroying the remnant, eventually when the civil powers awaken and see that they've been deceived, they turn on the creators of the plot. And you have that till the very end. In Revelation chapter 17, you have this harlot who's sitting on many waters. She's fornicating with the kings of the earth. She controls the commerce of the world. She has daughters that do her bidding. So everything is going real well for her. But the Bible says that eventually the kings will hate the harlot. They were going to destroy God's people. But now, when they discover that she's deceived them into, into giving these decrees against God's people, they will turn on the harlot and they will make her desolate and naked, they will burn her with fire, and they will eat her flesh. That's a way of saying that they're going to really be mad at her. <laughs> Notice Daniel 6, 7 through 9. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and satraps, the counselors and advisors, have consulted together. They're speaking to the king to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. So these guys say, oh, we love you so much, king. We, we just want people to just ask you, no god and no man, for 30 days. And the king says, well, these guys really love me. He's being deceived. He doesn't realize that they want to get rid of, of a very good friend that the king has. So the decree is given. Decrees of Medes and Persians could not be revoked, could not be changed. It appears like they're doomed. And so now Daniel hears that the decree has been given. So Daniel goes to his room and he says, No need to ruffle feathers. I'll just close the windows. No, that's not what he said. That would have been a sign that he was a coward. He had to bring the true God to prominence. And so it says in verse 10, Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. And in his upper room, with the windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees. See, this is an issue of worship, isn't it? He knelt down on his knees three times that day, and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. He says, the king cannot forbid me from making requests of my God. Do you see the difference between this and Daniel 3? Here the king is forbidding the free exercise of religion. Now what is the result? The result is the loss, the seeming loss of civil liberties of Daniel because he's going to be killed. See, the, the civil right of life is going to be taken away because the free exercise clause has been violated. 
And so notice Daniel 6, verses 14 to 23. The king discovers that he's been deceived, but the law of Medes and Persians could not be changed. So he's between a rock and a hard place. See, the king, the civil power says, I'm going to exercise my power and I'm going to give this decree. And then he becomes a slave of his own decree. He loses his freedom. Notice verse 14. What is the key word again? Deliver, deliver. It says there, and the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to, there it is, deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. So the king gave the command and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, your God, whom you serve occasionally, Good, you got your Bibles open, right? Sometimes I'll read wrong because I want to make sure that you're reading. Your God whom you serve continually, He will, there it is again, deliver you. What He's saying is God has to deliver you because I can't. Verse 19, Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. When he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God. This is verse 19. I jumped down to verse 19. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, there it is, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his who? Which angel? Michael. Once again, the angel. By the way, who did Jacob struggle with? Michael, the angel. In Daniel 3, who went into the furnace? Michael, the angel. Who was the deliverer here? The angel. Who will be the deliverer at the end of time? Michael, the angel. The mighty guardian angel of God's people. And so it says here, once again, verse uh, 22, My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths so that they would have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him and also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. Now the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury, whatever, was found on him. Now notice this again, the same idea as the three young men in the fiery furnace. Why was there no injury? Why was there nothing found on him? Because he believed in his God. That means that he trusted his God. Verse 25. Then King Darius wrote to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. And by the way, this is also an illegitimate decree. These are pagan kings. They don't realize that it's not their realm to give religious decrees. It would take a while to for, for the discovery of this, after the French Revolution, in fact. Verse 26, I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. Is that legitimate? Would it be okay for, for Donald Trump to say, everybody was, must fear God? No, that would be illegitimate because it's a religious decree by the secular power. And so it says, I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom men must tremble 
and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is one which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall endure to the end. He, <laughs> there it is again, he delivers and, in case you didn't understand what delivers means, and rescues. And he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. What is the central theme of this whole story? Deliverance. It's not persecution. Yeah, persecution is there. The loss of civil liberties, the greatest of which is life, is there. Yeah, a, de a religious decree by the secular power is there. But the central theme of this story is the final deliverance of God's people on the part of the Lord. That's what we need to focus on. So let me ask you, is there a faithful remnant in this story? Yes. Daniel. Does he have enemies? Yes. yes. Does he go through a time of trouble? You don't think that being in a lion's den all night would be a time of trouble? Was Daniel's faith severely tested? Did God delay to deliver him? Yes, all night. <laughs> Was he finally delivered? Yes. In all these passages, we have the same common denominators over and over again. Now let's take a look at another story. The story that we find in the book of Esther. You find this, this idea coming through time and again, time and again, the book of Esther. Is... The conflict in the book of Esther, does it have to do with the law and with worship? Yes. Absolutely. Go with me to Esther chapter 3 and verses 1 to 3. Esther 3 and verses 1 through 3. Very important verses. It says there, After these things King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman. Why did they do that? By the way, was it legitimate to bow before him? Would this be false worship? Yes, Ellen White said that he really was claiming homage that belonged only to God, she says in Prophets and Kings. This was not simply out of respect. This was an act of worship that Haman wanted. And so it says that all of them bowed and paid homage to Haman, why? Because the king had commanded people to do that. Was that a legitimate decree by the king? It was illegitimate on the, on the part of the civil power because he's commanding everyone to bow and render reverence to Haman. And so we're going to find that an individual defied the decree of the king, saying this is an illegitimate decree. So it says in verse 2, And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Why do you not obey the command given by the civil power to bow before Haman and render him reverence? Why, do you dis why are you practicing civil disobedience? Is what he's saying. And so Haman, when, hears, when he notices this, he's filled with wrath, with religious wrath. 
And he says, I'm going to wipe out not only Mordecai, I'm going, to, I'm going to wipe out everyone. All of the Jews, I'm going to wipe them out from the kingdom. The story is found in chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Notice the arguments that Haman uses. He uses some very uh, specious arguments before the king. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Those are people that are everywhere. Their laws are different from all other people's. Is this issue concerning the law? What, what would forbid Mordecai from bowing before Haman? The fact that the Ten Commandments say, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not bow before anyone except the Lord your God. So he says, their laws are different from all other people's, and as a result, they do not keep the king's laws. Which law? The law to bow before Haman. A religious decree given by the civil power. And then he says, because, listen, if you let these people live, and they disobey your laws, there's going to be anarchy in the kingdom. The kingdom is going to come to an end. So now he makes a suggestion. He says, therefore... It is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed. You catching the picture? Now, let's ask the question, is there a faithful remnant in this story? Yes, Mordecai and, by extension, the people of Israel. Is there an enemy? Oh yeah, Haman is the enemy, and his wife, Zeresh, you know, she's in the background. She's really the one who's moving all the strings. You know, Haman is just basically following the counsel of his wife. Does Israel go through a severe time of trouble? Notice Esther 4, verse 3, so that you can see how severe this time of trouble was. Esther 4, verse 3, and in every province... Where the king's command and decree arrived, there was what? Great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So there's a period of severe table anguish on the part of the people, a time of trouble, if you please. During this time, is their trust in God severely tested? You can read the story, it's severely tested. So does God immediately intervene to deliver Israel from certain death? No. They're actually under the death decree for 11 months when you read chapter 3. So they're in danger for a period of 11 months. There's a delay. They're not sure what's going to happen except that they trust in God. They trust in their God. But there's a delay where there's anguish and wailing and crying and sitting in ashes. That means extreme affliction. So there's a delay. But does God intervene in the end to deliver Israel from their enemies? Absolutely. And by the way, in this story, who ends up hanging on the gallows where Mordecai was supposed to hang? In Daniel chapter 6, who ends up eaten by the lions? 
<laughs> the enemies of Daniel. See, you have this recurring theme. When the civil power wakes up, you know, the king, if you read the story of Esther, became furious when he discovered that his religious advisor had deceived him. He says, oh, I didn't realize what the real agenda was. By the way, he was intending on killing the queen too because she was a Jew. So the king says, don't mess with the queen or with his people. They don't cause any damage to the kingdom. And eventually he turns on the religious advisors. That's a recurring theme in the Bible. By the way, Ellen White says that the papacy persecuted God's people. They trampled on people's civil rights during 1260 years. Uh, they, and, and particularly, she says, France was the kingdom that was used to persecute God's people. And what happened at the end of this period? At the end of this period, the very nation that had most supported the papacy turned on the papacy and gave it its deadly wound. That's going to happen globally at the end of time. There's another example. The greatest example of this is the story of Jesus. All of these I have in this newsletter article. You know, it's, it's a message. Ellen White says that we have a message for the kings of the earth. Don't mess with the papacy. She says when you, you, when you have to stand before, before kings and rulers, make sure you tell them the truth about this. Give them these biblical examples. The greatest example is the story of the condemnation of Jesus. You know, the Jews, they, they decided in the Sanhedrin, in the religious court, they decided that Jesus must die. But they did not have the power to execute the death penalty. And so they go to Pilate, the civil ruler. And they say to Pilate, this man need, needs to die. And by the way, Caiaphas had argued, it's necessary for one man to die and to save the, the nation from the Romans. You can read it in John chapter 11. One man must die to save the nation from the power of the Romans. And lo and behold, because the Jewish Sanhedrin used the civil power to condemn Jesus, the very Romans that they feared was going to destroy their nation, destroyed their nation. Time and again you find this recurring theme in scripture when the, when the state and the church join together. Now, is this story of Esther going to be fulfilled again? Absolutely. Pro, uh, volume 5 of the Testimonies, page 450, 5 Testimonies 450. Ellen White explains that this story is going to be repeated again on a global scale. I read, The decree which is to go forth against the people of God will be very similar to that issued by Ahasuerus against the Jews in the time of Esther. The decree will be very what? Similar. Is there going to be a time element in the death decree at the end of time? Ellen White says after a certain time, people will be allowed to kill God's people. And in a world today where everybody claims, you know, freedom and religious liberty and everything, you know, you say, how is this ever going to happen? Believe me, a few disasters, a terrorist nuclear attack, and things will happen very quickly. You know, people say, how, is, how are the Muslims ever going, how are we going to pro proclaim the gospel to the Muslims? I'll tell you what, I can't explain how, but I know that when push comes to shove, it's going to happen. Because scripture and the spirit of prophecy tell us, tell us so. You know, we used to say, when, when will communism ever fall? And then one, one night people went to bed, the next morning the Berlin Wall was coming down. Wow. That happened awful fast. Ellen White says the final movements will be slow ones. Oh, thank you. The, the final movements will be rapid ones. 
she says. She continues writing, The Persian edict sprang from the malice of Haman toward Mordecai. Not that Mordecai had done him harm, but he had refused to show him reverence which belongs only to God. See, this was not only bowing out of respect. No, this was, he demanded worship, Haman did. She continues writing, The king's decision against the Jews was secured under false pretenses through misrepresentation of that peculiar people. Is that going to happen again? God's people going to be misrepresented? Absolutely. She says, Satan instigated the scheme in order to rid the earth of those who preserve the knowledge of the true God. But his plots were defeated by a counterpower that reigns among the children of men. Angels that excel in strength were commissioned to protect the people of God, and the plots of their adversaries returned upon their own heads. The Protestant world, now she's going to apply this, she says the Protestant world today see in the little company keeping the Sabbath a Mordecai in the gate. His character and conduct expressing reverence for the law of God are a constant rebuke to those who have cast off the fear of the Lord and are trampling upon his Sabbath. The unwelcome intruder, that means the remnant, must by some means be put out of the way. So we need to study the story of Esther because the story of Esther will be repeated on a global scale. Now there's one final story and uh, this evening in the sermon I'm going to present um, a couple of uh, stories which illustrate what we're talking about because this is a central theme that I wanted to leave with you at this camp meeting. But there's one more story that I want to deal with before we bring this to a close. It illustrates everything that we've been talking about. The story of Job. This is the clearest story on what the time of trouble is going to be like, what God's people, uh, how God's people are going to lose everything that they have, the accusations of Satan against God, etc. Let me just go through the story with you for a moment. And I have, I have a whole presentation on the book of Job, but I'm going to synthesize. You remember the story. There's this meeting that takes place in heaven. The sons of God come to present themselves before the Lord. The sons of God are the representatives of the worlds that never sinned. And among those comes Satan representing planet earth because Satan stole the position of Adam. So Satan goes to that meeting. And in the meeting God asks Satan, where do you come from? He says, oh I come from, from going to and fro on the earth, you know I'm, I'm patrolling and supervising my territory. So I come from the earth. And so God says, says to Satan, uh, you, have you seen my servant Job? That even though he lives in your territory, he's my servant. That he's a righteous man who departs from evil. Perfect. And of course, uh, Satan, and by the way, this is, this is being um, witnessed by the heavenly jury. Because this is really a trial that's going on in heaven. And the jury are the heavenly beings. And so, uh, Satan says to God, well, you know, of course Job serves you. Who wouldn't? You've surrounded him with a fence. You don't let me touch him. You've blessed him. You've given him lots of possessions. You've given him lots of children, a good wife. You've given him every blessing in the world, and you won't allow me to have access to him. 
But if you took all of that away, he would blaspheme you to your face. Now God has a choice to make. The heavenly jury is watching and observing what's happening. And they're saying, really, God did put a hedge around Job. And God did bless Job. <laughs> In that, Satan is right. Maybe it is true that, uh, that Job serves God for the loaves and the fishes. What if God had said to Satan, oh, don't pay any attention to him, he's a liar. The heavenly beings would have wondered, hmm, maybe Satan's accusation are right. So God says to Satan, oh, really? I'm dramatizing for effect. Oh, really? I give you permission to go out and take everything that he has. And then the jury will see whether you're right or I am. And so Satan goes out before the presence of the Lord, and you know the story, the devil wipes him out, kills all of his children, takes all of his beasts, camels and sheep, kills all of the servants. In a matter of minutes, this is not something that happens over weeks and, and months, it says that one was talking and the next one came, and that one was still talking and the next one comes. In a matter of minutes, he gets the news of this calamity, he's lost everything that he has. He's been wiped out. And what did Job say? God gave. He was half right, by the way. He didn't know what was that. He had no scripture to appeal to. So don't be too hard on him. He says, God gave and God has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. <laughs> he didn't blaspheme God. He blesses the name of the Lord. Oh, and the heavenly jury says, God was right. Job doesn't serve God for the loaves and the fishes. Job serves God because he loves him, no matter what, all the evils that come. So then a second meeting takes place in heaven. And once again, the sons of God come to present themselves before the Lord, among which is Satan. And God says to Satan, where do you come from? Oh, I come from patrolling the earth, from supervising my territory, from running, going to and fro on the earth. So God says to, to um, Satan, obviously with, uh, with a little bit of healthy pride. He says, have you seen my servant Job that in spite of the fact that you enticed me against him, he still conserves his integrity. And the heavenly jury is saying, yes he does. And so Satan now, he always has, always has an argument that he comes up with. He says, of course he serves you. You didn't let me touch him. If you let me touch him, he would blaspheme you to your face. God says, oh really? I give you permission to go and do whatever you want with him, only don't kill him, because if he kills him, the trial's over. I give you permission to go and do anything you want with him, only preserve his life. So Satan goes out and he afflicts Job with boils from the top of his head to the plant of his feet. And it was so bad that he had to scratch himself with a potsherd which means that there were gashes in, in his body. You know, imagine scratching yourself with a, with a piece of pottery, sharp pottery. And so now, you know, he's lost all of his beasts, he's lost all of his servants, he's lost all of his servants, he's lost his health, and now he's saying, well, I sure hope I have the support of my wife. And his wife says, Job, you still conserve your integrity? Be real. Curse God and die. 
Who was behind what his, what his wife said? Satan. Satan was the one who said, he, he will curse you to your face. So now she says, curse God and die. And, sees, and Job says, you're foolish. Why should I pay attention to what you're saying? So now he's lost the support of his wife. And then his three best friends come to comfort him. <laughs> and to make a long story short, his three friends become accusers. They say, it's you're because a great sinner, you're arrogant, God is punishing you. And they use all kinds of arguments against Job. And then after the second chapter, from chapter 3 to chapter 38, you'll find Job crying out to God and saying to God, why is this happening? Why have you become my enemy? Remember, he didn't have any scripture. You know, we have the benefit, we know that when bad things come to us and we haven't done anything to deserve it, we know that the devil is behind it and God is allowing it. And we're going to see the reason why God allows the, the suffering of Job and why God allows suffering in our case as well. There's a purpose behind it. And as long as we keep our focus on the purpose, you know, we're going to remain faithful to God. And so the three young men come and they accuse Job. Job has lost everything, the support of friends, the support of family. He's lost his family, he's lost the support of his wife, he's lost his health, he's lost all of his possessions. And now it appears that he's also lost his best friend, God. Because from chapter 3 to chapter 38, he's crying out to God for God to, to give him an audience. He says, if I could come to your throne and explain my case, I know that you would see, you would understand my arguments. Why are you silent? You can see it time and again, chapter after chapter. Why are you silent? Why have you forsaken me? It's okay if I lose my possessions and my health and my, the support of my wife and my servants and everything else. He says, I have no problem with that, but why have you turned against me? He doesn't lose his faith, even though he's questioning. In fact, you have very high points where Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And in other places he says, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. So he has this ambivalent feeling, you know, why has God forsaken me? But he has these high moments of faith where he's not letting loose. And he's asking and asking and asking the Lord to explain. Finally, you get to chapter 38. And when you get to chapter 38, the first couple of verses, God says to Job, now you be quiet, I'm talking. And so God now asks over 50 questions of Job between chapter 38 and chapter 40. And he begins by saying, where were you, little worm of a man? Those are my words. When I created the world. When I established the world. Where were you? And so God asks a series of questions. You know, he follows actually the order of creation week in his questions. And for each question that God asks, Job feels smaller and smaller and smaller and more and more insignificant. Until finally, after God shows him his greatness, you know, he created the constellations, he created the beasts, he created the birds, and he, you know, he, he cr created the world and the vegetation. Everything is described there. And Job feels smaller and smaller and smaller until finally after God shows him his greatness by all the questions he asks, Job says, I'm sorry I asked. I will speak no more. You know, something that people, that has surprised people that have studied the story of Job 
is that all of the main protagonists reappear at the end of the story. But Satan uh, simply, it seems like he disappears from the story. The guy who caused all the problems, you know, he's there at the beginning, but what happened to him? Well, the fact is he does reappear at the end of the chapter. But his name is not Satan, his name is Leviathan in chapter 41. See, in chapter 40, Job says, okay, you made your point, Lord, I'm going to keep my mouth shut, I will speak no more. But then God shows Job Leviathan, and Job says afterwards, he says, excuse me, Lord, i got to speak again. <laughs> you can read it. Who was Leviathan? Job would have known what Leviathan was because in the ancient world where Job lived, there was an, the enemy of the gods was called Lotan. He would have known, and by the way, that was in a polytheistic world, Job would have known that it was the devil because he was not a polytheist, he worshipped one god. But he would have known by the name Leviathan that it was referring to the enemy, the arch enemy of God. And so now God shows him Leviathan. By the way, Leviathan is described as the king of all the children of pride. Who is the, who is the king of the children of pride? Satan. And when you go to other places in scripture, you'll find very clearly that Leviathan is a symbol of Satan. Because Psalm 74 says that Leviathan is a multi-headed creature. You can read it in Psalm 74, verses 12 through 14. It was a multi-headed creature. Then you go to Isaiah chapter 27, verse 1, where it speaks about Leviathan, and it says that Leviathan is the twisted serpent and the dragon in the sea. So you know that Leviathan is the serpent and Leviathan is the dragon. Are you with me? And then you go to Revelation chapter 12 that puts it all together. Revelation chapter 12 speaks about this seven-headed creature. And this seven-headed creature is described as what? Described as the dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, and Satan. The very name that appears in Job 1 and 2. So Job now understands that the, that the being that has caused all of his problems is not God, but Leviathan, the devil. And so now Job speaks in, chapter, uh, in the last chapter of Job, he speaks again to God. And he says to God, chapter 42, verses 1 through 6, he says, all of the questions that I asked, I asked out of ignorance. I did not understand. He says, but now my eyes see. And then it said he repented in dust and ashes. He isn't repented prim repenting primarily over sin. He's repenting over asking God to give explanations because he didn't understand what was happening, what was going on. How do you suppose God looked before the universe in this trial? God was vindicated before the universe. Job served God because he loved God. Pure and simple. So let me ask you, do you have the same common denominators in this story that you have in all of the other stories that we've noticed? Is there a remnant in this story? Yes. Job. Is there an enemy? Satan. Does Job go through a time of trouble? Oh, did he go through a time of trouble? Was his faith severely tested during his time of trouble? Absolutely. Did God delay to deliver him? Yes, but was he finally delivered? Yes. In fact, the Lord gave him double of what he had before. 
And maybe his wife was converted, I don't know. <laughs> because there's no reference that he did, that he, had a, that he received another wife. But maybe his wife saw the light, she said, wow. You know, he remained firm. Now we understand exactly what happened to Job. Now the question that I want to end with is this. Why does God allow a delay? Two reasons. Number one, in the story of Job, God allowed a delay because he wanted to teach a lesson to every being in the heavenly universe. God wanted to show that there are people, and in this case it was Job, but Job represents the end time generation. Ellen White actually quotes from the book of Job. God wanted to show that God in the territory of Satan will have a people that are faithful to God because they love God, not because of what God gives them and what God does for them. It will be a living testimony before the universe that God has a people that serve Him no matter what happens because they serve God out of love, not out of self-interest. So it will be a lesson book to the universe. The second reason is because in these trials, character is refined. Earthliness is consumed. Let me just read you from the Bible and then from the spirit of prophecy. Even Job understood this. In Job 23 verse 10 he said, When God has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. See, he understood that, the tri that his trials were like going through a furnace of fire to cleanse the, the, the dross so that he could come out pure gold. Isaiah 48 verse 10 says, Behold, God is speaking, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. A couple of statements from the spirit of prophecy. Speaking about those who go through the time of trouble. Their faith does not fail because their prayers are not immediately answered. See, you, we think that when we pray to God, you know, God has to answer yes or no. No, God has another way of answering. He says, wait. We don't like that, do we? Because we are, uh, we are a generation of people that wants immediate gratification. I want it and I want it now. If I have a headache, give me an aspirin or Tylenol. Don't solve the problem. It might be a long-range problem. It might be changing my diet. It might stop drinking, might be stop drinking caffeine. Of course, nobody here does that. It might be due to several factors, but you no, know, we want immediate gratification. But uh, Ellen White says that uh, during the time of trouble, the faith of God's people will not fail because their prayers are not immediately answered. Though suffering the keenest anxiety, terror, and distress, they do not cease their intercessions. They lay hold of the strength of God as Jacob laid hold of the angel, and the language of their soul is, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. On page 621, she refers to the three young men in the furnace. You know what the furnace is at the end of time? It's the time of trouble. The furnace. It's, a, it's symbolic. The fact that the furnace was heated seven times before, such as never before, represents the fact that this is the worst time of trouble that has ever existed. 
She says, speaking about the end time generation, their affliction is great. The flames of the furnace seem about to consume them. But the refiner will bring them forth as gold tried in the fire. God's love for His children during the period of the severest, their severest trial is as strong and tender as in the days of their sunniest prosperity. But it is needful for them to be placed in the furnace of fire. See there you have a reference to Daniel 3. In the furnace of fire, their earthliness must be consumed that the image of Christ may be perfectly reflected. How awesome. That is Great Controversy, page 621, the chapter on the time of trouble. So when is it that we learn to trust God this way? When, when the crisis comes, we said, Lord, I will now develop faith. I will now serve you continually. No. It's now that we have to learn to trust God and abide in Christ. Through prayer, through Bible study, through witnessing, through being active in the church. Now. It's now that we should be thankful for tribulations. Thankful for trials that come to our lives. Let's not complain and moan and groan at God. When bad things come, let's say, you know, God allows this for a good reason. And even though I can't understand it now, I will understand it someday. Luke 16, verse 10, the last verse. He who is faithful in little will be faithful in much. And he who is unfaithful in little will be unfaithful in much. We must learn to be faithful to God in the little things of life. God will have an entire end time generation that will say like Job, though he slay me, Yet will I trust in Him. I know there's a lot of criticism of the idea that God is going to have a victorious end-time generation. But God will have that victorious end-time generation. A people that love God so much that they say, even if I have to die, I will still be a servant of the true God. That's the kind of follower that Jesus wants. One that does not serve Him for all of the blessings and benefits Amen. that he gives. But simply out of love. Amen. Is that the kind of person that you want to be? Yes. Yeah, the people up here anyway. Amen? Amen. 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 Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you this afternoon thankful that you've left all of these stories in your word. It would be one thing for you to say, I'll be with you, don't worry. Then to read these stories and know that you've done it before. We know that as you've done it before, you'll do it again. Help us, Lord, to trust implicitly in you, not to moan and groan about the trials that come to our lives. Help us, Lord, to realize that there is a plan in everything. Everything that you cause and everything that you allow. We might not understand in this life what the purpose is, Help us to trust that someday you'll explain it and then we'll say thank you, Lord, for doing it that way. Thank you, Father, for giving us these stories, for giving us this glorious assurance of final victory. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.